0: Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, and while you're doing that, um, can, we just, can we just put the, uh, the lyrics of the, the chorus Waymaker back up there for a second? If you don't have a Bible with you, just slip your hand up. Uh, one of our ushers will be thrilled to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. Uh, we are a people that orbit around the Word of God, and uh, So we want to preach the Word of God. We want to teach the Word of God. We want to comprehend and apprehend the Word of God, for in it is life. And uh, we're just singing that song, and I'm looking up there, and this is our God. He is a waymaker. When there doesn't seem to be a way, He's a miracle worker. That's not just that He's got different laws of physics that He abides by. No, He can actually intervene into the affairs of men and women and override everything because he created everything. He's a miracle worker. And sometimes sometimes we we want to see the really big miracles and we miss the lean ones that make all the difference. And we're going to see that as we work through the book of Esther here. He's a promise keeper. Let that sink in. He's a promise keeper. Our God is a what? A promise keeper. So whatever he says, it happens. If he says he loves you, he means it. If he says that will never be taken from you, it will never be taken from you. If he says that he's prepared a place for you, a table for you in the presence of your enemies, if he says he's prepared a a place for you to live forever in perfect peace and unity with no more hunger and no more thirst, then he means that and it will happen. And he's light in the darkness. How many of us need light to be able to make our way? And then you can, you can throw that down. And then the bridge. Even when I don't see it, God is what? Working. God is working. Even when I don't feel it, God is what? Working. God is working. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, God is working. So turn to Esther chapter 2. And before we read, I got a picture to show you. Does anybody know what this is? Frogger! Frogger. (laughs) Everybody knows what Frogger is. So this is a game that came out in 1981. I was born in 1981, and one of my first memories is actually of the game Frogger. I don't, I don't remember hardly any of the details of the event. I think we were out in the East Coast someplace and we had some car trouble and this wonderful Christian family took us in and we were able to stay there overnight. They fed us. And I don't remember hardly any of those details, but what I do remember is we got to stay up way past our bedtime to play with their children. We got ice cream after like 9 o'clock. It was fan- I think it was ice cream. I don't remember. It was sweet and it was delicious. And we got to play Frogger. This was my first exposure and one of my very first memories. And the whole point of Frogger is you can see that in the middle of the screen there on the brick part there, there's this little green thing. That's a frog. And, and the frog starts on the bottom and has to cross over the road without getting hit by cars. It's amazing. <laughs> you you got to jump at the right time. You got to move over. You got to maybe jump twice in a row. And you got to make sure you don't get hit by the car. And then once you get across the car, you get to that little brick pathway. And then you got to watch out for snakes that's awesome too. And if the snake is coming and you jump too soon and you land in the water, you get eaten by an alligator. <laughs> so you got to avoid the snake. You got to jump on the turtle and the turtles are going this way and the logs are going that way. And if you don't time your jump right, you end up in the water. You get eaten by an alligator. It's an amazing game, which is why you all know it. Have you ever done frog or blindfolded? On a serious note, how many of us feel at times that our lives are like a game of Frogger? And the problem is that we're blindfolded, trying to navigate. What's the right decision here? if If I make this decision, it could go really bad, really fast. If I, if I make this decision, that could also go really bad really fast. What school do I go to? Who do I marry? What kind of job do I get? Now we've got a medical decision to make, and I'm not sure. What do we do? Conventional wisdom? They're saying there's not a good shot. Do I try something else? Life presents us with decisions that we have to make where we can't often see. And we don't often feel great. But who's working? God's working. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, if you haven't already. I think I said that already. Sometimes I can't even see what I said five minutes ago, or less. The challenge for us is that our minds are designed to recognize patterns and to organize ideas to interpret communication, to interpret data. We touch something hot, we go, "Wow, that's hot, why is that hot? And then what do I do next time? We look for purpose and for meaning to bring chaos to order. That's how we're designed. But sometimes we can't find the pattern, can we? Sometimes we don't know how to interpret the data. Sometimes we just don't have enough data. We can't see enough of the picture and so we can't see purpose and meaning. And what do we do? Often we approach our lives like a puzzle. I just got to figure out the puzzle. If I, can, if I can find the formula, then I can get the outcome that I want. And sometimes that's true. There is a discernible, predictive element to life at times, but it's not always true. Sometimes, sometimes our approach is to look at it like art, and we move the medium around the page, and we massage it until it looks like something that's acceptable, and if we're not happy with it at the end, sometimes, some of us artists just fall into depression. And we rip the page out, and we toss it away and start over again. Some of us approach life like it's a surgery, and we know it's going to hurt, and we know it's going to be a long recovery, and so we just want the most powerful anesthetic we can find to dull the pain. So in Esther 2 here, we're going to actually see, and this is a funny text, it doesn't actually have a lot to help us with but we're going to see a microcosm of something larger. We're going to see a snapshot in time that actually parallels our lives very well. And we might not see very much that's very helpful right away, but our approach to this chapter, and we'll see in our approach to this chapter how we're actually called to approach interpreting our own lives as we live them out. So in Esther chapter 2, we're going to see a culture like ours. We're going to see a people like us. And in trying to make sense of Esther chapter 2, we're going to see that we actually don't know very much at all. How many of you guys, now that I've said this, nobody's going to put up their hand, how many of you guys think you actually know some things? Okay, one honest guy. All right, we're going to blow your mind today. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We kind of go through life and we kind of think, you know what, I've learned some things, I've, I've been through some things, I've suffered, I know some things. And we do know some things. But our levels of anxiety and depression will tell us that we don't know enough. We're also gonna see though here, the key to peace and joy in life. And in a a life or in lives that often looks like trucks and alligators to a little frog. You guys wanna see that? The key to peace and joy? When the big trucks are coming and the snake is chasing you off the path and the alligators are in the water waiting to eat you? No? All right. Well, let's read. Let's read. Esther 2. And I'll just get you to stand out of reverence for God's word. If you're able, if you're not able to stand, please do not feel any obligation to do that. Jesus loves you. He knows where you're at. And he sees the heart. So chapter two verse one says this: After these things, when the king or when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Remember, she was deposed from last week. Then the king's young men, who attended him, said, "Last last time the edict was wise men who knew the times. This time he's hearing from young men. How's that going to go?" Then the king's young men who attended him said. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the Citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, Uh, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died... Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now Esther had not made known to her people or kindred, sorry, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, uh, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashkaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines." She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihil, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Uh, He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not, been, had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows... And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Wow. This is the word of God. Please sit. So, so far in Esther, we just have a list of events. Okay, so we're introduced last week to a king and a queen. We see the defiance of Queen Vashti and the deposition of Queen Vashti. We see the depression of Ahasuerus. And then he searches for a replacement as a solution. We see the placement of Mordecai in Susa. We see the adoption of Esther by Mordecai, which results in the propositioning of Esther. And then we see the coachability of Esther and the charm of Esther and the quietness of Esther, which results ultimately in the coronation of Esther. And the coronation of Esther results in the promotion of Mordecai, the information that Mordecai is able to gather, and then the subsequent protection of the king, and the possibility of favor for Mordecai. But the chapter ends here, so we can't talk about whether Mordecai is favored or not. Come next week and you'll find out. Do come next week and find out. This is just like our lives. The events of yesterday lead to the events of today, which set up the events of tomorrow. And often, we don't really have a clue why. Why? Now, we understand this book because we've read the book of Esther, lots of us, but if we just take Esther chapter 2 in a snapshot in time, we're looking at all this stuff, and it just looks like a normal life or normal happenings in a maniacal, crazy place, and we fail to recognize two things that we're going to see here. We're going to see a culture like ours, and we're going to see a people like us. There is instruction in this for us. But it comes from the context of the culture like us and the people like us. So just really quick, looking at this culture, uh, the big thing that stands out is this is a culture with certain values. And if we look carefully, this is a culture with values that are very similar to the culture, the values of our culture today. Right? This is a culture that values power and glory rather than humility. And prudence. I'm not going to get into these things. You'll just have to, I think, I think you'll see these things pretty obviously in our culture. This is a culture that values outward beauty and sensuality rather than dignity and honor. We just look at some of the most money-making industries in the world, and we can see easily it's about outward beauty and sensuality. We're trying to please our senses, We're trying to please ourselves with the things that we take in our eyes, the things that we touch, the things that we taste, the things that we listen to, the things that we smell. This This is a culture that also values control rather than serving other people, giving up our preferences to serve other people. This is a culture that values comfort and luxury and physical gratification. Does this sound familiar? And we see all this stuff in the king, but... If we only see it in the king and we fail to see it in ourselves, we prove that we don't see very much at all. But this is also a culture where even though people are used and discarded and we see this, someone gets someone displeases another and they get they get put out of fellowship and out of favor. And and isn't that something that marks our culture today? If you don't agree with me, you're cancelled. this is also a culture where the powerful just gather whatever they want. And we see this in the gathering of these girls. The suggestion from the young men, duh, is like, hey, let's get a whole bunch of pretty girls. Let's bring them in and look at them. We'll, we'll mix we'll mix Miss Persia with Persian Idol. And, and Kyle has, Kyle has a really, Pastor Kyle has a really great way of looking at this. It's, it's Miss Perversia, and, and Perversion Idol. He's, he's, he's one of those punny guys. But you know what? It wasn't just the girls in this culture. 500 boys were taken every year and made eunuchs. 500 every year. The powerful could do whatever they wanted and did because they value power and glory, outward beauty, sensuality, control, comfort, luxury, physical gratification. This is also a culture where decisions were made in drunkenness. We saw that last week. We see it again, and we'll see it again. This is what what they would do. So the the Persian nobles, what they would do when they had some big decision coming up or they needed to deliberate over something, they would all get together. They would have a party. They'd get hammered. And then whatever idea they proposed, the next day when they were sober, if it made sense, they went with it. And we're like, that's dumb, but don't we do that today? I always ask people about their tattoos. Do I need to go any further? I always ask people about their tattoos because there's always stories, and I want to know people that I'm in front of. And you would not believe the number of times I hear people say, oh, that was a bad decision, I was drunk. It's easy for us to snipe these cultures because we're sitting back and, and reading a text, but we're very, very similar this is a culture just like ours, and the thing that marks it is disorder. Disorder. Because of the value system. Things are not how God designed them to be. This is also a people, though, just like us. This is a, this is a sensuous people. They operate based on trying to please their senses, and then they become a sensual people because they recognize that in order to get somewhere, I have to cater to people's senses. And we live in a culture like that as well. It's a self-centered culture, an ambitious culture, a culture that is uh, full of manipulation and, and manipulatability. I don't know if that's a word or not. But you've got to be manipulatable in order for the manipulators to actually be able to do their thing, right? And even while it's all of these things, we also see a culture of generosity. In verse 18, it says that when the king was finally pleased with Esther, uh, he gave he gave the provinces a remission of taxes, Someone's got to please our government. (laughs) Remission of taxes, and then he gave gifts out of royal generosity. So there is this, even as we see all of this potentially negative stuff, there's also uh, generosity that we see. There's concern for and interest in loved ones. In verse 11, Mordecai walks back and forth uh, in front of the the harem. He wants to know what's happening to Esther because he cares about her. And Esther in verse 22, when when Mordecai uncovers the plot, he goes and tells the king in Mordecai's name because she wants Mordecai to receive favor. She cares about him. So even as we see all of this not good stuff, we also do see some of the things that humanize uh, one another to ourselves. Really what that means is that this is a culture of Brokenness. This is a people of brokenness, people just like us, people that are not as God designed. Uh, uh, Mordecai and Esther are exiled. That's brokenness. Esther has been orphaned. Brokenness. The eunuchs, come on. Physically broken and probably mentally broken as well. And even the king, the guy who's at the top, who's in charge, who's doing all of these things, is broken. He is not a man as God designed a man to be. So we see a culture like ours in Esther 2. We see a people like ours in Esther 2. And so we can actually see ourselves in the text. But what does this text actually teach us to do? What do we do in a a disordered culture amongst a broken people when our lives don't make sense? We have no idea what's happening. Well, this, this text is really hard because it's entirely descriptive. All it does is tell a story. It it's not prescriptive in any sense. There's no imperative, hey, therefore, do this. this. This text doesn't even tell us about people's motivation. We can't even really know what's behind all of these, these activities that are going on. A lot of times, we go into a text because we already know the end of the story or we're informed by other things, and that's not a bad thing. But then we try to go into our lives and impose the same types of things on what we're seeing in our lives. And guess what? We often don't know. The number of times, I'm not sure whether to, I'll put it this way. Um, And don't put up your hands, okay? How many of you know someone they're impossible to talk to because they have this narrative going on in their minds and when information comes in, they have changed the information rather than change the narrative. So they change the information to fit the narrative rather than change the narrative to fit the information. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That's often how we approach our lives. When we're facing something, we're looking at something we're like, I'm not sure what I'm seeing. It looks like a truck or an alligator. I feel like a frog. I'm not sure what I'm seeing. What do we do? So as we approach Esther 2, We're going to see that our approach to Esther 2 is often very much like our approach to our lives. We're going to see in Esther 2 that we actually don't know very much at all, just like when we're facing our lives. And I'm talking about just when we're looking at Esther 2, not Esther 3 through whatever, okay? Esther 2, the typical approach is exemplary. We look for the villain. And we say, I don't want to be like the villain, right? Or we look for the hero or the heroine with an E, not just ending in an end. The heroine with an E, the female hero, okay? Isn't that what we do? And then we say, you know what? There's got to be some virtue there that I can follow. There's got to be some virtue there that I can emulate. There's got to be some sort of principle I can pull out of this so that I can apply it now to my life and get the same results that he or she got. Am I right? Tell me I'm wrong. Okay. So let's actually do this. Let's look around to gain our bearings. Let's look around in Esther 2 and find out how much we don't know applying that type of approach. Okay, so first of all, let's, let's, let's maybe look at the first character we see. The king. Villain or hero? Villain. Villain? He sure looks like it. He looks like a maniac. The only time we see the king in Esther... He's either drunk and happy, or he's drunk and angry, or he's sober and angry or depressed. That's the only time we see the king. To be honest with you, though, I often feel like that, minus the drunk part. I've never been drunk, okay? But often, I'm pleased for a little bit of time. I'm angry for another little bit of time. I'm depressed. I'm regretful looking back on past benefits that I no longer have because of past bad decisions, I kind of identify with the king. I I also know though just from experience and other parts of scripture that I don't want to emulate him for very long. He's insecure, he's impressionable, he's self-centered, he's driven by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. But if we don't see ourselves in him, we see less than we should. If we don't see ourselves in him, we see less than we should. This is exactly what God calls us out of, and this is exactly what Jesus entered into to save us from. Amen? And that requires confession and repentance. Okay, so let's look at the second character then. What about Vashti? Is Vashti a rebellious wife, a pompous diva, or is she a noble, dignified, strong woman? What is she? The author doesn't tell us. We don't know. The author doesn't tell us. Okay, well, let's look at the wise men then advising the edict, right? Hey, get rid of your get rid of your wife. Are they just loyal advisors and just want to help this guy maintain his influence and leadership? That's what every leader wants, right? Yes, men. Or are they foolish, fearful, misogynistic husbands that 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 feel the threat to their own well-being in their homes? Which is it? The author doesn't tell us. We don't know. Okay, well, let's look at the young men then advising Miss Persia or, or Miss Perversia or however you want to put that, the beauty contest. Are they just loyal puppy dog counselors trying to make a guy feel better because they care about him? Or are they ambitious opportunists trying to work favor or trying to get the guy off their back because how many of you know that a depressed king is not a good, not a good master? Which is it? Are you getting the picture? The author doesn't tell us. We don't know. So we look at people and we can deduce a lot from a narrative by looking for clues and by, by looking at the big picture, which we'll get to in a second, but we don't know the motivation without revelation. We don't know motivation without revelation, and so we don't actually know the lay of the land unless that is revealed to us, and that's what makes our lives hard, isn't it? I don't know why this thing is happening to me. I don't know why I'm losing people I don't know why I'm losing a job. I don't know why the economy is such a hard place right now and I can't buy a house. I don't know why so-and-so is treating me this way. I don't know. That's what makes our lives so hard. We don't know. Okay, so surely Mordecai is virtuous, right? Mordecai is one of the heroes, right? Surely he's a wise, godly, noble man uh, just bringing up his cousin, Or maybe he's a compromised Jewish Persian building his own kingdom in a pagan culture. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa. There was a Jew in Susa. Where should he have been? This Jew being in Susa in the citadel of Persia is not God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing because the temple's already been built in Jerusalem. It was built in 516. It was built... Some 35 years earlier, finished. And then a bunch of the Jews went to the place of God, Jerusalem, to the temple where God was supposed to be, not Mordecai. Look at the rest of verse 5, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. This is really, really significant. And again, you got to come next week because the next part of that is in chapter 3, So, come and hear Dr. Wayne Baxter expound on that. It's really, it is, it's mind blowing the significance of him being the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. But what I can say is this the first king of Israel's name was Saul, and he was the son of Kish, who was a Benjaminite. So, if you're a Hebrew reading this, you go, oh, this dude who is not in God's place, not under God's rule and blessing, is he Saul? Is he another Saul? Saul train wrecked the kingdom and he had to be removed because he was disobedient to God. So, which is Mordecai? Let's look at another one. Look at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Mordecai basically said, Hey, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. They were both so Persian that you couldn't tell if they were Jewish or Persian unless they told you they were Jewish. Mordecai says, Don't tell. That's like Pastor John coming up here and saying, when you go out of here, don't tell anyone you're a Christian. It might not go well for you. That's what that was. Deny your identity. Deny your foundational identity. And then notice in verse 9, the young woman pleased Haggai, won his favor. He quickly provided her with cosmetics or portion of food with seven chosen young men from the king's palace and advanced her to the best place. The next statement, Esther had not made, her, made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to. That's significant. She just got advanced. Why? Because she didn't tell anybody who she was. And Mordecai commanded it. This happens again. Jump down to verse 19. This is actually sometime Later when the virgins were gathered together or when virgins were gathered together a second time, so the king went and did the whole thing all over again, Mordecai this time was sitting at the king's gate. He'd been, he'd been promoted because Esther's, ki- Esther's queen. And look at verse 20. Esther had not made known her kindred or people as Mordecai had commanded her. So now Mordecai's advanced because she didn't say anything. And then it emphasizes the point, verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So she didn't say anything. She gets advanced, she's able to advance Mordecai because she didn't say anything, and then he's in a position now where he can uncover a plot against the king and protect the king. I thought good things were supposed to happen to good people, and bad things were supposed to happen to bad people. So nobody could tell that they were Jewish because they hid it, and they advanced because of it. So, was Mordecai virtuous? Was he godly, noble? Or was he a compromised Jewish Persian building his own kingdom in a pagan culture? Which is it? We don't know. What? We don't, know. we don't know. Say it loud. We don't know because the author didn't tell us. We don't know because the author didn't tell us. Here's an A student right here. <laughs> Surely Esther. Right? Because if we're good Christians, we end up in places of significance, don't we? Surely Esther is virtuous. Is Esther a virtuous girl taken against her will, a victim of circumstance, or is she pretty fully assimilated into Persian culture and maybe even excited about the opportunity to move up? All these women that jump into Miss Universe and all that kind of stuff? Do they want to? Or is it just or is it just the culture? Like we just kind of push them into that. The truth in that is we don't actually know that either but let's look at Esther for a second. Look at verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. We like Esther. We just like her. Do we ever ask why? We like her because she's orphaned. We feel for her. And we like Mordecai because he took her in. We, We feel for them. And we should. And we like her because she's beautiful and lovely. Oh, sorry. She has a beautiful figure and she's lovely to look at. It doesn't say she was lovely to be around. Maybe she was. Everybody with me? The author doesn't tell us. So we don't know. The only thing we know is what we know. Look at verse 9. The young woman pleased him and won his favor, and we already saw that he advanced her. So she knows how to win favor. Look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, she asked nothing except what the king's eunuch, who had charged her, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So she wins favor with Haggai because she's compliant. She wins favor with everybody else because she's beautiful. And look at verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. That was after spending a night with him. So she knows how to win favor because she's compliant. She knows how to win favor with her looks, and she knows how to win favor with other things. She didn't have to win his favor. She didn't have to please the king. Look at verse 14. This is describing what, what would happen to the typical woman. She would go into the king in the evening. She would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashka, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her. So she's a Jewish girl and she's like, I do not want to be defiled by this Gentile guy. She didn't have to please him. She just would have gone to the second harem. And, she, and he wouldn't have called for her again because she didn't please him. And she would have lived the rest of her life, albeit alone, and that terrifies some people, but she would have lived in a spa for the rest of her life, doing whatever she wanted, unless she got summoned by the king. But she wouldn't, because she didn't please him. So in case we're tempted to look at this and say, you know what, she was actually, and this was my view before I started studying, she was was forcibly taken. She was forcibly taken, but she wasn't forcibly kept. In some sense, she didn't have to please the king, but she did. She knew how to win favor. One other thing to note in all of this there is no mention anywhere of prayer, no mention anywhere of the two of them seeking God for understanding or direction or protection or favor like we heard from Daniel, no mention of worship of the covenant God of Israel, no mention of any kind of religious observance at all. So, are they exemplary? Or compromised we don't know because the author doesn't tell us we're left in the dark and we need to ask the question why because the approach to this is the same approach that's gonna serve us in our lives when we don't know what's happening in our lives we can't make sense of it and we have to ask the question why and we do ask the question God, why? When something bad happens to us, that's that's one of the first questions. Why? When something good happens to us, we never ask that question. Why? Why don't we ask the question when things good happen to us? Because we say, this is how it's supposed to be. I deserve it. But the author here doesn't tell us why, and we need to ask why. And the reason is this. The author has a different purpose, The purpose is not to focus on the characters as example. The purpose of the book is to be read in its entirety, to be read regularly, so that we can actually see the big picture, we can see the whole. So when we take one chapter out like this, and it's good to do this, we should do this. We take this one chapter, it doesn't have a lot to say to us because it's just a snapshot in time. Like your life right now and like my life right now, it's a snapshot in time. And there's so much that we don't know where the events of yesterday lead to the events of today and set up the events of tomorrow, and everybody is just doing their thing, just making the decisions that they need to make at the time, trying to make sense of their lives. Is that not true? If it's true for you, why isn't it true of the other people around you? I'm very judgy. Like, I look over and I'm like, I know why that guy's doing that. I don't. I gotta, I gotta repent of that. And at this point in the story, nobody actually knows that the Jews will be in trouble. And at this point, it doesn't look like anybody is actually particularly interested in God. And at this point in the story, we don't even know where God is. So we need to actually step back and we need to see the whole. In order to understand Esther 2, we have to understand from Esther 1 through to the end of the book. Better, we have to understand from Genesis to the end of Revelation to understand Esther chapter 2. Because the author doesn't tell us because the author has a different purpose. This story is not about the devotion of these characters to God. This story is about the devotion of God to these characters. This story is not about the devotion of these characters to God. It is about the devotion of God to these characters. And your life is the same, and your life is the same, and my life is the same. We want to be devoted to God but what we discover the closer we get to him is that he is actually devoted, utterly devoted to his purposes, his plans, his promises, and his people. We try to interpret a snapshot in time apart from the broader context of history, and we, we sometimes miss that our stories actually are not about us. Our stories actually aren't ours, really. Really? Our stories are his story. Our stories are his story. And that's why it is in life, often we don't see, often we see so little, often we know so little, and it's hard to make progress, and we suffer such hardship that just seems meaningless sometimes. Do you want to know why? Because the author of life has a different purpose. The author of life has a different purpose. Our purpose, loved ones, hear me. Our purpose here is not to build comfortable lives. Our path is, as followers of Jesus, is not simply to live principled lives and move up. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to be vessels where God uses us and works with us and moves us around so that the cosmos sees Him as being ultimately satisfying. Why do we think that we can go into the temporal, material things of this world and and count on those to satisfy a spiritual, eternal gap and longing? Those are the things that get us into trouble in the first place. Those are the things that are beckoning for our worship. We can't turn to them to make sense of life. We can't turn to them to fill us up. The purpose in glorifying God and, and having the cosmos see Him and us see Him as ultimately satisfying is to walk with Him in a fully satisfied, fully contented, full fellowship. That's the purpose. One, one more story. I, uh, I was at a really hard po- point in my life. This wasn't very long ago, just a few years ago. And, uh, and I just had this, I don't know if you ever get this, you're like, I need to go away and talk to God. I don't want to, but I need to. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so I took the dog for a walk. It was a blizzard. And being angry and rebellious, I left my jacket half undone and my I did have a hat on, but I left my my face open and I'm shouting into this blizzard. God, where are you? When I want to talk to my dad, I call him up. And I say, "Let's go for a walk." And he goes for a walk. And you're supposed to be the same. And you know, this knowledge settled over me. And it was this, I'm here. What do you want to talk about? And I said, I don't know. I'm mad. What do you want to talk about? He says, and I didn't hear anything audible. This was just a knowledge that came into my mind. One second it wasn't there, the next second it was. What do you want most in life, Jay? I said, I want to be like Jesus. That's what I want most. And then this knowledge. Is that what you should want? Is that the highest value? And I said, of course it is. I was a little more quiet because I was like, huh, I never thought about that before. Is that what I should want? And I walked in silence with the dog, and then it hit me about 10 minutes later. No. I want to be with Jesus If it's possible for me to not be like Jesus, but I can be with Jesus, I'm okay. And you know what? It is possible for us to be with Jesus and not yet like Jesus. That's why Jesus became a man. That's why he took humanity on himself to destroy sin in the flesh. But if I'm like Jesus in my self-styled realism and arrogance, if I think I'm like Jesus, but I'm not with Jesus, I'm as dead as anything as dead as I ever was. It is much, much better to be with him. And you know what? When you're with him, the byproduct is you can't help but become like him. But the value is to be with him. And I continued walking, and then the next question came. So what do you want to talk about now? I said, well, I want to talk about all the things in my life that are terrible, the things in my life that are causing me pain. And I heard, okay. Let's talk about that. What do you want? I want clarity, God. I want clarity. Just tell me why. And the question is why? Why do you need clarity? I need clarity so I can navigate this life. I can navigate all these difficulties. That's why I need clarity. Have any of you, have any of you ever prayed that before? Have any of you ever desired clarity? I just want to know why. And then the question again is that what you should want? I said, well, I'm not sure now. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is that what I should want? So let me ask you a question. If you were a little frog and you had to get across the road and it was a blizzard like this and you couldn't see, would you go for it? Well, if I had clarity, I would. Well, you're never going to get clarity in this life. True clarity but if I told you where to step and when to go, because I do have clarity, would you go? Would you trust me? Because that's what walking with me is. If God told you when to jump, when to move sideways, when to stop, even if you couldn't see, would you get across the road and across the river? You would. Loved ones, Clarity is overrated, and clarity sometimes is dangerous because then we take the burden back onto ourselves, and we try to do it ourselves in our own strength, and ultimately that's so that we can glorify ourselves, and that is not the purpose of us. So when we approach Esther 2 just by itself, we see ourselves in it. We see our own lives. We see the confusion and the clarity without the big picture. We must see a self that sees very little. And we must take a step back and see a God that we can trust. Now, what if we're having trouble? And I'll close with this. What if we're having trouble trusting that God because we're not sure he's actually good? What if we're having trouble trusting that God because we're not sure he's actually good? We We look around, we're overwhelmed by confusion and pain and loss. If you're doubting his providence in your life, then here's what we preach to ourselves. This God is so good and he is so faithful and he is so interested in you that he actually put humanity on in its brokenness and he entered a culture like ours and entered a people like us and submitted himself to not necessarily seeing things but he was fully submitted to his father and he navigated life and we hated him so much that we crucified him because of what he exposed of us. But that very act in God's providence for you and I enables us to enter into life and to be changed and to be transformed. And so when you're, when, you're doubting the confu- when you're in the confusion and the pain and the loss and, and, and wrestling with desire for pleasure and you're doubting the providence of God, you preach to yourself this. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And you preach to yourself the cross of Christ because that's the guarantee, that is the evidence of God's work. When we don't see it, when we don't feel it, and we're stuck in a snapshot in Esther 2, We know that God is working behind the scenes. When we don't feel it, he is working. When we don't see it, he is working. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's what we preach to ourselves when we can't see, so that we put our little hands in his big hand and we walk slowly faithfully alongside him. Amen? That is the power in Esther chapter 2. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word we actually see the whole picture. So that when we when we enter into the confusion where we're just not sure what's going on around us, we can look at you because you are sure. And we can stop and we can just let you guide us. And so, Holy Spirit, my cry this morning is that you would would put us in positions. where we can hear your voice. Uh, Motivate us to your word so we can hear your voice. Motivate us to prayer so we can hear your voice. Motivate us to fellowship with your people so we can hear your voice through them. Move us, draw us near so that we can hear your voice. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. Thank you for opening our eyes to these things, Holy Spirit. Uh, And thank you, Lord God, for being so good and so faithful. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. And, uh, and as we move to communion, I'm just gonna look at Luke chapter 22. When we, when we partake in communion, uh, the Apostle Paul says that we are proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes. So when we come to the table and we partake in the elements, we're recognizing God's providence. We're recognizing God's goodness, and we're actually proclaiming it. So when when we struggle in life, come to the table recognizing what it is. This whole thing is actually preaching to ourselves those things that remind us of God's providence Before I read, I'll just invite everybody to, to come. Is that right? Okay, I'll just invite everybody to come. There's, there's uh, elements back there at the back, so for those of you who are back there, for those of you who need to come up here, just come up and, uh, and, uh, and receive the elements and then make your way back to your seat and we will remember the Lord together.